Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you have sent your Son to bear all of your wrath against all of our sin. Thank you for the lavishness of your grace and the greatness of your forgiveness and your cleansing, for the greatness of your power to transform us and to make us more like your Son. Thank you that you are far more committed to that than we are and that you are faithful to complete the work that you have begun. Father, thank you for the riches of your word and the power of your word and the sharpness of your word. Lord, we, we're here this morning because we, we want our hearts laid bare beneath the truth of your word to be open to your gaze. Um, Lord, we know only in being laid bare can we grow, can we be healed, can we see our sin that needs to be confessed that we might experience your cleansing and forgiveness. Father, please help us this morning. Help us to be ready to hear whatever your spirit wants to apply to our hearts from your word. Please um, build us up in the faith that we might be fruitful, that your church might better display the fullness of, of Christ. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Okay. Well, I have a question for you this morning. How often have you met with Jesus this week? How often have you met with him? Did you find a quiet place and a quiet time? Or maybe a mostly quiet place and a mostly quiet time if you've got little ones around? Did you quiet your heart and quiet your mind and just beg Jesus to help you meet with him, to draw near to him? Did you open up his word expectantly, longing to behold wonderful things there? Go ahead and look at the back of your notebook. This is really just another way of thinking about our purpose and our discipline to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And then that leads us right into discipline one. She prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So it's been two months since we started Wellspring, and we started with a Bible reading plan. And ever since then, we've been talking about making sure that it's not just a task, that it's a time where we are meeting with God, and that we're understanding how desperately we need him, and that we're desiring to get all of him. That's why we have a yearly reading plan, to get us into all of the word. We know God as well as we possibly can. And it might have been hard it might be discouraging. You might have even thought about um, giving up. But I really want to encourage you. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So if you're feeling overwhelmed because maybe you're behind on your reading plan 
or there's no joy in it because you feel guilty because you're having trouble keeping up or it's just not a time of meeting with the Lord. It's just something you have to do. You know what? Today can be a reset day. It can be a day where you pick up your plan and you just pick up where you left off. And if it takes you longer than a year, that's okay because you will eventually finish if you don't give up. Or, you know, if you're a person who just gets stressed out from looking at your plan and having it say October 1st and you're reading it on November 12th, just start reading what it says on November 12th. Now, will you miss a few things? Yeah, you'll miss some things. But remember, what we're after is cultivating a lifelong habit. Think about the kind of women we'll be 10 years from now, 20 years from now. There's some of us who might be here 50 years from now. Think about the kind of women we can be if we have been meeting with God by reading through his word 10 times, 20 times, 50 times. Isn't that what we want? So please don't be discouraged, especially if this is new for you. Anytime we're beginning something new, there's just an element of discipline in it. That's why they're called disciplines on the back of our notebook. But if if we persevere, then time with the Lord in his word really just gets sweeter as we persevere in crying out to him and asking him, help us to make this a time of meeting with you. See, discipline is a good thing. It's our friend, it's our helper, because it's what keeps us coming to the word. It keeps us coming to God to meet with him. And as we do that, he transforms our motivations and our desires. And increasingly, these words from Psalm 119, verse 103, will be ours. It says, How sweet are thy words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And that's just a great verse just to pray. Lord, I want that to be true for me. That's how I want your word to be for me. So then that brings us to discipline two. She ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Now today our teaching moves into discipline two. Not because we move on from discipline one and coast, right Barb? (laughs) Right, we never move on from our heart. We don't graduate from the heart. But we're moving to discipline two because our household is the first place where the gospel's work in our lives has an opportunity and a responsibility to be displayed. Now, I was reminded while I was preparing for this lesson that because of my own sinful heart, my household is often the place of my greatest failure and my greatest regret. So even when I don't mean to, I can really easily provoke our kids. I can really easily not assume the best about my husband. I can really easily react to somebody else's struggle with sin with my sin. Right? Many of us have strained, broken relationships in our households. Maybe we have poured ourselves out into our families, but we don't see the fruit that we have just earnestly labored for. Maybe we've been hurt by our families. Maybe we've lost hope for our families, for our households. Maybe we just want to give up or flee But the fact that the household is so difficult and so challenging makes it 
the perfect showcase for the gospel. See, it's just like the Lord to put us in a place that brings us to the end of ourselves, that brings an end to our self-confidence and our self-reliance so that he gets all the glory in us as he does his work in us as we live out our faith and the work of the gospel in our households. Regardless of how other people in our household respond to that. The gospel is that powerful. It enables us to love the people we live with because God loved us first. In Lamentations, I was in my Bible reading plan this week, was really encouraged by a verse where the prophet Jeremiah is um, talking about Judah. And uh, they've been sent into captivity because of their sin. And he says that their false prophets had not exposed their iniquity so as to restore their captivity. And so in a similar sense, we look at what God's word says about the home, remembering that God's word is a sharp, double-edged sword. It's like a sharp, double-edged sword. And it may expose our sin and our failures and our regrets, but... When God exposes sin, it's for the purpose of restoration, to bring us to repentance so we can be restored with him and have strength in relationship with others. Now, I want you to listen to this quote. It's on the back of your outline. It's from Counsel from the Cross, and it's from the chapter. It's how Elise Fitzpatrick ends the chapter on the gospel and relationships. And it reads, The gospel changes everything about us. Most particularly, it changes how we love and treat others. Soaking ourselves in the astounding love of God for us, weak and sinful as we are, will cause us to become people who love. The pure, undefiled Prince of Heaven, Jesus Christ, was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It should be obvious that he loves sinners because he has loved us. Living in the light of this truth will enable us to love. It will remove all our self-righteousness and craving for respect. It will free us to lay down our lives and not keep a running tally of who sins most or who serves most. And it will make us patient and gentle. The gospel is the environment for all our relationships. The gospel teaches us to love. And then she closes with 1 John 4, 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his son, his only son, into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We must strive for this kind of love. We need to plead with God to develop his love in our hearts. We won't just wake up one day and have our households be all they should be. We have to labor and apply ourselves and take advantage of every opportunity God gives us to love those in our households. And then that leads us to discipline three. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. 
Now, as we grow in being faithful to shepherd our own heart with God's word, and we're growing in our faithfulness and ministering in our households, then we will also be growing in our usefulness as an instrument in the hand of God to minister to those beyond our household. We'll be ready to interact with others with wisdom and grace and humility so that they are spurred on in their pursuit of Christ. If we are intentional, if we labor, if we are diligent about these disciplines, then we will be women of integrity because we'll be dragging every smaller role that we have into our gospel identity. Do you remember when Scott taught that a few weeks ago from Luke 12? uh, I think it was September 18th he taught that sermon. If you didn't hear that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to it because it's a really helpful way to think about our lives, dragging every role we have, whether it's who we are at home or at work or at school or at church, or at the gym, it doesn't matter where, you drag every one of those roles into our, your identity, into, into the gospel, into who we are in Christ. So that the gospel is displayed in every one of those roles. So with that understanding, now we're going to talk about the home. Go ahead and take out your notes. It says, The Home, A Biblical Survey of Home Life. So as we move into Discipline 2, we're seeking to gain a sense of what God thinks about household relationships. What does he say about marriage? What does he have to say to parents? What does he have to say to children? What does he have to say about one generation and the concern that they are to have for the next generation? Now, this is important for all of us. God is concerned with the relationships we have with our brothers and sisters, with our parents, God is concerned with what we say to the little ones in Next Generation Ministries, with our influence when we babysit, with our grown kids, with our grandkids. Discipline, too, is about how we interact in our own household, how we interact with those who come into our household, maybe how we interact in other people's households, how we interact with those in our household who live beyond where we live, extended family. And it's how we encourage one another to honor the Lord in our household. So today we'll look at nine categories to help us see God's heart for household relationships. In some of these categories, we'll walk through it like we did when we did the survey of the heart. We'll start in the Old Testament, and then we'll walk forward through into the New Testament, because that's how God gradually unfolded his revelation to us. We want to work our way from front to back so we get a full sense of God's heart for the household from all of Scripture. It's important to understand that as Christians, we're not under Mosaic law, what we find in the Old Testament. For example, we don't obey the command to obey our fa- or honor our father and mother because it's in the Ten Commandments. But we do obey it because Jesus taught it in Matthew 15. Now, that doesn't mean that the Mosaic law or the Old Testament doesn't have value. All of Scripture is revelation. The Old Testament provides examples and it reveals the character of God, it reveals the character of man. But when it comes to understanding what we are to do in regard to our household relationships, we want to obey for the right reasons under Christ, because he's greater than the Mosaic law. In the same way, when we see Old Testament promises, it's important to look in the context and understand who those promises are given to. We'll see promises in our very first reference, 
But they're not promises for Christians today. They're promises for Israel. So it's just important to be asking those questions as you look at Scripture. So we're on number one on your outline. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. The first category on our outline is the relationship between the heart and our household relationships. Okay, we're going to start with Exodus 20, verse 12. And verse 12 is right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. It's the fifth commandment. The first four commandments um, speak to Israel's relationship with God. They're more vertical in nature. But here the commandments turn and they become more specifically horizontal regarding relationships between people. So in verse 12 it says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The first human relationship that God deals with is the parent-child relationship. And then down in verse 14, we see you shall not commit adultery. Again, you see God focused on the household. He's dealing with the husband-wife relationship. And then verse 17, he says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. See, God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household as well. Israel was supposed to be very concerned that they weren't looking wrongly at somebody else's household. So here we are in the Ten Commandments. First four are about man's relationship with God. And then the very next thing God addresses is the household. Three times in those last six commandments. God has very specific expectations for the home. Um, in the Mosaic Law, God is... Um, that, he's, that he's giving Israel, he's demonstrating that he's thinking about these basic foundational household relationships. The home is what was on God's mind. So go ahead and turn over to Deuteronomy 4. Now if you remember, if you are in a reading plan maybe that's had you in this portion of scripture recently, Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. God actually did it, but he used Moses to lead the way. But the people rebelled, and they wouldn't go into the land that God had promised them. And so they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years, and they weren't allowed to go into the land until all those who had rebelled had died off. So in Deuteronomy, this is 40 years later, and Moses is talking to those children who've now grown up, who originally were told to honor their parents. And Moses is reteaching them the law before they go enter the land. So in Deuteronomy 4.9, it says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. So there's discipline one spelled out for Israel. But make them known to your sons and grandsons. You see how quickly he moves from discipline one to discipline two? He just right away ties together the heart and the home. Then verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. See, the responsibility, the focus, the burden for the Israelite household was for parents to make known to their children what God did when he brought them out of Egypt. 
When God gave them the old covenant in the wilderness, his intent was never just for that generation, just for those who were hearing him. All along, he had a view towards the coming generations, one after another. He was telling them, this is not just for you. You've got to teach this to your children. And again, we see this just follows really closely on the heels of caring for your own soul. God's heart has always been that we would take care of our own hearts with his word and that we'd be giving that word to our children. Now go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 6, just a page or two over. This is known as the Shema for the Hebrew word um, that means to hear, or to listen, to obey. And we'll start reading in verse 4 where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. So again, that's our discipline one. But then again, right into discipline two. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He's saying everything you do in your house from sleeping to getting up to walking to going out to staying home, whatever you're doing, He's saying your household, Israel, is to be dominated by a concern for God's word. See, there's this intimate connection between love the Lord your God with all your heart and tell them to your children. You get the idea here. This is not a one-time thing. This isn't even just a -a once-a-day thing. This is an all-the-time thing. Discipline one, our heart, and discipline two, our household, are inseparable. They go hand in hand. Over and over again now, we have seen the influence that our heart has on our household. But this next passage is really interesting because we see that the influence actually flows both directions. Let's see. I I missed my reference. Somebody have the outline. What's our next reference? Deuteronomy 7? Okay. I think I was supposed to tell you to turn there. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 7. Are we starting in verse 1? Okay, Um, this passage talks about how the influence goes both ways, how there's also an influence of the household on the heart. Okay, so verse 1, When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you're entering to possess it, and shall clear away many nations before you, and he lists seven nations greater and stronger than you, Verse 2, when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take your daughters, their daughters for your sons. Why? Well, because they're going to turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. God is saying that there cannot be one household where an Israelite marries a foreigner who worships another god. That kind of household is not to exist in Israel. God feels very strongly about the kind of household that he wants. And this kind of idolatrous household can't be there at all. Why? 
because hearts are easily led away. Hearts get turned away from Yahweh. See, that is God's concern. In Israel, the burden was on the mothers and the fathers to not let their children do this, to shepherd their children in such a way that they, that these children, this next generation, would want to follow God, that they would not want to abandon this God who was about to give them this land to live in. And part of that meant don't let them marry people outside. Don't let them marry people who have other gods. Because, and so, again, you see that it's that two-way street. It's not just the influence that the heart has on the home, but it's also being concerned for the influence that the home has on the heart. And now we're going to again see the influence of the heart on the home in Psalm 78. Over and over again, we're just seeing this inseparable connection between the heart and the home. All right, now there's this... A lot of generations um, listed here, so listen carefully and realize um, how far-reaching what he's saying is. He's not just um, speaking to those who hear. Beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 78, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children and tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. So again, do you just see that concern? God's concern is the next generation and the next one and the next one. They all must know that God is trustworthy, that they can put their confidence in him and that they are to obey him. Um, instead of like in verse 8 where we see that not like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart, they didn't shepherd their heart, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So God is very clear about this relationship between the heart and the next generation. Now turn to Malachi chapter 4. It's the last book in the Old Testament right before Matthew. If you get to Matthew, just turn back a few pages. And God is telling Israel what's going to precede Christ's return. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. See, God is telling them, he's warning them, he is going to come and smite everything. And one of the ways they can be ready is to strengthen their families, to strengthen the household relationships. God's heart is inclined so strongly to the home. It's what's on his mind. Now, turn over to Ephesians 6.1. You have a reference for Luke 1 in your outline, and that's where you'll, we find a partial fulfillment of Malachi 4.5 in John the Baptist. But we're going to go ahead and turn over to Ephesians 6. Um, and we're going to see that God's heart for the household relationships continues to be displayed 
in the New Testament. So we'll start reading in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is a repeat of the fifth commandment that we already looked at. Now it's brought under the authority of Christ for the church. And the first thing Paul addresses is our role as children. Children, obey your parents. How? In the Lord. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, we've got to be shepherding our hearts so as to obey and honor our parents in a way that honors the Lord with the right heart attitude with the right facial expressions, with the right tone of voice, right? It's not just the heart, it's how it comes out as well. And then in verse 4, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but what do we do instead? We bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So as we interact with the next generation, it might be our kids, it might be our grandkids, it might be kids in next generation at church, We have to both live out God's word and hold out God's word to them because it's only God's word that can give them the wisdom that leads to salvation. See, they need the hope of the gospel. And so parents in particular must be faithful with discipline and instruction in the Lord so as to not frustrate their children. Now go ahead and turn over to 1 Timothy 3. The household is so important um, to God that in order for a man to be elder qualified, to be qualified to lead the church, he must manage his own household well. He can't leapfrog over it. Verse 4 says he must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? See, that's how important household relationships are to God. They're a measure of a man's qualification to lead others. Now turn over to Titus 2. Here we'll see that a woman's faithfulness in her household also has an impact beyond her household. Uh, Verse 3 says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women. Now notice how many of these are specifically focused on the household. To encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. See, that's the why. That's the why we want to be faithful in our household, in our relationships. The consequences of our character and our faithfulness in our homes and in our relationships actually has an impact on how other people will think about God's word. So that was just like a race, right? We just marathoned through Old Testament to New Testament. And so after that, just hop, skip, jump through scripture, there's just no way that we can look at what we've seen and not be concerned for the household. You can see that this is very near and dear to the heart of God. And that was all number one on your outline. 
and I promise that the remaining eight points do not have that much material to cover. Um, I think we'll go ahead and take our break here, and then we'll come back and we'll look at some examples from Scripture, some women who got the household and the value it has and some who rejected it. So go ahead and take a little break, and we'll come back in ten minutes. All right, we're at number two on the outline. We're going to look at an Old Testament example of a woman who grasped God's heart for the family and the home. Now, the book of Ruth takes takes place, thank you, during the time of Judges. And the book of Judges ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was the spiritual climate. There was no submission to God, no submission to authority. Let's just all decide for ourselves what we think is right. But Ruth's life is a refreshing contrast to that. Um, Now, in Ruth chapter 1, we find a Jewish man named Elimelech who takes his wife and his two sons, and he moves to Moab because there's a famine in Israel. And so they move to Moab, but then Elimelech dies. Then his sons marry Moabite women, and then the sons die. So you can imagine what that'd be like for Naomi, right? She's in a foreign country. Her husband dies. Her sons die. She's left with these two daughters-in-law who are foreigners. But Naomi hears that the famine is over back in Israel, and so she decides to head home. Now, at first, her daughters-in-law go with her, but Naomi encourages them to stay in Moab. Now, one of them, named Orpah, agrees, and she goes back. But the other one, Ruth, clings to Naomi. (coughs) So uh, Ruth wants to stay, but again, Naomi urges her. She says, go back. Go back like your sister-in-law did. Go back to your people. Go back to your Moabite gods. Naomi said that. But Ruth responds with a bold declaration of faith. Go ahead and look in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. See, Ruth did not want to stay in Moab. She didn't want the Moabite gods. Ruth declares that Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God of the Bible, is her God. Now listen to what she says next in verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord Yahweh do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. In Ruth's mind, to have Yahweh as her God meant that she was going to be devoted to to her mother-in-law. Okay, now Ruth is a beautiful role model for us of a woman whose heart for the one true God was first demonstrated by loving her household. In this case, her widowed mother-in-law. That same mother-in-law who told her to go back to Moab, to her Moabite gods, find herself a Moabite husband. The mother-in-law who by her own admission is a bitter woman. You see that in verse 20. This is almost funny. The women in Bethlehem um, see her coming back, and they say, is this Naomi? And Naomi says to them, oh, don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara, because that means bitter. Call me bitter. 
for the Lord Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So see, Naomi is not just bitter. She is bitter at God. And if you remember what we studied a few weeks ago, bitterness is evidence of pride. There's this attitude here of of entitlement where I deserve something better. But this proud, bitter woman is the family that Ruth chooses to love. This is the family that she lives out God's work in her life with. So now let's look at how she cares for Naomi. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So Ruth asked Naomi if she may go glean. That was the provision under Mosaic law to care for the poor. After the harvesters had gone through the field, the poor could come pick up what was left over. So Naomi agrees, and Ruth goes out gleaning. Now, after gleaning for a while, she meets the landowner, Boaz. And amazingly, her reputation has preceded her. He's heard of her integrity. And Boaz says to Ruth to Ruth in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, All that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth, and you came to a people that you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. There are two things that Boaz knew about Ruth before he ever met her. First of all, he'd heard about all that she'd done for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And the second is he knew that she had sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, that's really interesting because we don't really know all that much about Ruth. We don't know what kind of a wife or mother she was. She went on and she married Boaz. And they had a son named Obed, and Obed wound up being the grandfather of King David. So she's actually in the royal line. But, um, but we don't know, it doesn't specifically tell us what kind of wife she was or what kind of mother she was. But what we do know is that when she identified Israel's God, which is our God, as her God, she cared for Naomi. Even though she was a foreigner, even though she had no guarantees that she would ever marry or that she would ever have children, her love for God drove her to love this bitter, proud woman. Now listen to what the women in Bethlehem say to Naomi after Obed is born. This is in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to a a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law. Listen to this. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. That's really humbling, because I don't think my mother-in-law could say that. But Ruth demonstrates for us God's heart for the family and the home, no matter who that might include. And then that brings us to number three. We're going to take a look at some Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart 
for the family and the home. Now, there are a number of references listed, and they're all really good. They all have failures we can learn from. But we're going to turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. We're going to take a look, starting with Jezebel. So here's a little context. God made David king over Israel, all 12 tribes of Israel, after the death of Saul. And then David was succeeded by his son Solomon as king, who was also king over all 12 tribes. But after Solomon died, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom, which is usually called Israel, sometimes Ephraim. And then there's the southern kingdom, which is most often referred to as Judah. You have to look at your context because sometimes the southern kingdom is called Israel. But um, most often it's called Judah. Now, um, the northern kingdom was plagued with one bad king after another. So we're going to look at Jezebel. Jezebel becomes a queen to the king in the northern kingdom. She comes along about 75 years after the death of Solomon. So Jezebel marries King Ahab of the northern kingdom. She was the daughter of a foreign king. But remember, we've already seen that God has forbidden that over and over again. But um, that didn't stop Ahab. So Ahab brings Jezebel to Israel to be his queen. And with Jezebel, he brings her false gods, her idols, her false worship, thus provoking God. But it just keeps getting worse. In 1 Kings 18, Jezebel destroyed the prophets of God. Now, throughout Israel's history, they were they struggled with idolatry, but most of the time, they at least gave lip service to the one true God. Not that that's good enough, but Jezebel wasn't even content to do that. She wanted to destroy the worship of Yahweh. And then, in 1 Kings 21, Jezebel finds out that her husband Ahab is sullen and vexed because a man named Naboth wouldn't sell him his vineyard. You know? I guess we all have our things that set us off. That's what set Ahab off. He couldn't get the vineyard. So Jezebel schemes to have the people kill Naboth so that Ahab can take his vineyard. But remember, in Israel, land was supposed to be handed down from generation to generation. Again, it it points to God's care for the household his regard for the household. But Jezebel doesn't have any regard for the ways of God. She hates God, and she doesn't have any regard for the household or the family. It is trivial for her to take a man's life, to get his land, and to rob his family of their inheritance. Now, 1 Kings 21-25 gives a commentary on Ahab after this incident. And it says, Surely there was none like Ahab, who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. What an indictment. This woman, Jezebel, is responsible for Baal worship in Israel, persecution of God's prophets, murder, robbery of a family's inheritance, and inciting the king, her husband, to do evil. But sadly, even that is not the end of it. Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter by the name of Athaliah. 
Now, Athaliah married Jehoram, who was a king in the southern kingdom, the one we usually call Judah. Now, remember, her father was Ahab, and he was king in the northern kingdom. But sadly, Jezebel's influence spread through her daughter into the southern kingdom. And 2 Kings chapter 8 says that Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his wife, Athaliah. Now, what kind of evil did he do? Well, 2 Chronicles 21 says, now you've got most of those references in, in, in your notes, and I'm kind of just flying through them. Um, but feel, I, I would encourage you to go back and look at them because it's kind of interesting to piece it all together. But uh, in verse 6, 2 Chronicles 21 says that when he'd taken over the kingdom of his father, he killed all his brothers. You see this disregard for the household. It just spreads. And then Jehoram and Athaliah had a son, and his name was Ahaziah. Now Ahaziah also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his mother's family in the northern kingdom. So think about this. We have a corrupted husband, murder, robbery, a man murdering his own brothers, more corruption of a husband, and children. This is just the antithesis of God's heart for the household. God designed the home to be a place where his name is declared and worshipped, where his mighty works are remembered and praised where one generation exhorts another generation to love him and trust him and obey him. But this family has turned the household into a place that spawns evil, even against one another. They have rejected any semblance of God's heart for the household. There is a pervasive rottenness, and it's just spreading. And we're not done. Go ahead and turn to 2 Kings 11.1. In 2 Kings chapter 10, Athaliah's son Ahaziah is killed. Now read with me in 2 Kings 11.1 what happens next. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. This is a grandmother murdering her grandchildren. Athaliah annihilated her grandchildren. Why? She wanted control. She wanted to be in charge. She wanted to have the throne. Now Jezebel and Athaliah are almost fun to hate because it's in some way nice to find someone who's way more simple than I am. But really, they should make us tremble. Because I know that I'm way more like them than I am not. Don't we all have that yearning to control, control others, grasp, be in charge? See, we can struggle with these very same desires, even if our methods maybe are a little bit more socially acceptable than Jezebel and Athaliah's. See, we came into the world with the very same kind of heart that they had. And that is why we must guard our hearts and lay them bare before God's word and plead for a heart for our household that matches God's heart 
for our household? See, we will impact our household. The question is just how. So we started this morning with looking at the relationship between the heart and the household relationships in Scripture. And then we saw the way Ruth's heart impacted her household in a really beautiful way. And now we've seen just how destructive it is when there is a rejection of God's heart for the household. There is just no way that we can conclude from Scripture that the household is not important. It is the decisive place, relationally speaking. So let's move on then to number four in the outline and look at the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. Turn back to Deuteronomy 8. Context-wise, remember, Deuteronomy puts us back on the plains of Moab um, 40 years after they've come out of Egypt. I'm having trouble finding Deuteronomy 8 here. The number of times you've been in Deuteronomy, those pages ought to be nice and loosened up, huh? All right, this is where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel after they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And this is long before they have a king. And this is what Moses warns them about in verse 10. He says, When you've eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances, which I am commanding you today. So when you're in a blessed situation, Israel, and things are going well, that's the time to be concerned and the way you're going to know that you're that you've forgotten the Lord is that you're not obeying and so then verse 12 he says lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and you're living in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies things are just going great then your heart becomes Proud, and you forget. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That household that God gives them there, where he blesses them so richly, that household becomes the place, the very place that forgets God. And they need to be aware of that. God's telling them ahead of time, that this home that he's giving them will be the place where they most easily forget him. And he's warning them so they'll be aware and they'll guard against it, just like we need to be aware of that danger and guard against it. It is just very easy to forget God in the home. Now, thankfully, in Christ, the household can become a platform for the gospel where everybody else in the household is impacted with the gospel through one person's heart for the gospel. So that brings us to number five on the outline, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. We're going to turn to Acts 16. You can read Acts 10 on your own. It's about Cornelius. We just started going through Acts on Sunday, so it'll be great to walk through this there. Now in Acts 1613, Paul makes his way to Philippi on a second missionary journey. 
and we read in verse 13, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside, where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia had her heart opened by the Lord, and that made a huge impact on her whole household. We see that they were all baptized. And then down in verse 29, we see something very similar with the Philippian jailer. There's a big uprising in Philippi, and Paul and Silas get thrown in jail, and they're there at night singing. And then there's this earthquake, and the Roman guard who is guarding them draws his sword to kill himself because he's assuming because of the earthquake, all the prisoners will run away. And if he loses his prisoners, then his superiors are going to kill him anyway. But Paul and Silas cry out, wait, stop, don't do that, don't hurt yourself. And then um, in verse 29, it says he called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. He and his household who had heard... Let's see. Did I skip a line here? Um, he and his household, and he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in Jesus, believed in God with his whole household. So again, we see the impact that just one person can make on a household. And that's the first place that this jailer made an impact was in the place that he lived. So do you see the impact that we can make on our household because we love the Lord Jesus Christ because he's changed our hearts and he's given us a love for his word. See, it needs to be our desire and and to cry out to God, God, if you would just be so pleased to take and change my whole household and keep sanctifying my whole household because of what you've done in me, through what you're doing in me, I want to be your slave to that end. That is just a prayer that God would love to answer. But the only way that we're going to be useful as an instrument in God's hand for accomplishing that is by continuing to put our heart under God's word, right? meeting with him, drawing near to him in his word. It's a daily dying to self and um, committing ourselves again to following Christ in our household. Now, with all that we've seen about how valuable the household is to God, how important it is, how much he cares for it, it doesn't, shouldn't come as any surprise that there's going to be an attack on the household. So that brings us to number six on the outline. Go ahead and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay. 
So let's go ahead and read, beginning in verse 1. Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Again, you see God's concern for the household. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving. And this is quite a list. Irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Now, why is he telling us all this? Well, because we need to avoid such men as these. Why? Well, he explains, verse 6, For among them are those who enter into households. And what do they do in those households? Well, they captivate weak women. Now, what do you suppose he means by weak women? Let's just keep reading. These are women in households who are weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Evidently, there are women in these households, and they don't know how the gospel addresses their sin, because they're still weighed down with their sins. They're still weighed down, and they don't know how the gospel dethrones their impulses and their desires and how the gospel changes them. They haven't been equipped well with the gospel to know how to deal with their sins. They don't know how to use the gospel to deal with their desires. And they're always learning something. They're learning. But it's not how to shepherd their heart to the word of God to grow in the knowledge of the truth. So that's where the attack is. But now here's the question we need to ask ourselves after looking at 2 Timothy 3. Who or what is creeping into our homes? See, we have a culture that speaks very, very loudly. It's pretty persuasive, isn't it? And it comes at us through the TV, magazine, on our Phones, always in our hip pocket, self-help books, even lots of things that say Christian on the cover. We live in a world that worships pleasure, and sometimes we just really want to follow right along, don't we? But in so doing, we are missing the ultimate pleasure that's found only in knowing our God. I want you to turn to Psalm 16. I don't know if this reference is on your notes or not. Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, 11 says, You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, this is why we spend so much time on Discipline 1, because if we are not women who understand shepherding our own hearts, if we don't get Discipline 1, if we are not shepherding our hearts to Jesus Christ with the Word of God, if we don't use the Gospel to fuel our repentance, and our growth in holiness, then we pose a threat to our own homes. 
We pose a threat to the church. We pose a threat to the ministry of the gospel. This is really serious. See, we just leave ourselves open and vulnerable to believing lies, to drinking all the world's Kool-Aid about how much we need to love ourselves, and passing it right along to those closest to us. And we have to guard against that attack. But, this is the next one on the outline, we also need to guard against exalting the household above the gospel. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 10, verses 34 through 38. We're going to take a look at how the family and the home can become an obstacle to the gospel. Now, most of these references um, you can look at on your own. But in light of the value that God places on the household, these next verses almost sound kind of confusing. And so we're going to try to figure out what is Jesus getting at here. And so in verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. See, Jesus is making a really strong point that the gospel of the kingdom of God is first. And everything else is second including our family. His point is, you come follow me. So, here's what happens. One person in a household comes to Christ, and then they're called to take that gospel into their family, into their household. Now, sometimes we see in the New Testament, like with Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer, that the whole family comes to Christ. But Jesus is teaching that that is not always the case. When we bring the gospel to our family, we might actually find out that the members of our household become our enemies. And if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, then that believer must follow Christ and not the family, even while she stays in that family, in that household, displaying what the gospel has done in her life, the change that Christ has made in her as she loves that family and she serves that family. And she forgives that family. And she seeks their forgiveness when she sins against that family. See, the family and the household relationships get pulled under the gospel. They get dragged into our slave identity in Christ. For our Scots words again. So we love and we esteem and we serve those closest to us because of the gospel's impact on our life. And Jesus did this in Matthew 12. He is with his disciples, and he's gone days without eating, and his family comes looking for him. They think that he's lost his mind, and so they're coming to rescue Jesus. And so what does Jesus say when he finds his family outside? This is in Matthew 12, verse 50. And you kind of get all that context if you read what comes before. But Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister. And mother. 
Jesus is helping us understand the household relationships in proper relationship with our kingdom identity. Now, what practical difference does that make? What does that really mean? Well, one way that that we might see that in our lives is that if I put my identity in Christ under my family identity, then you might hear me saying things like, well, you know, I was just raised that way. You know, my family, we're just all yellers. Or, you know, well, well, I've always been that way. And we're using our family's influence perhaps as an excuse for our sin. But when I place my household identity under Christ, under my identity in Christ, under the work that the gospel has done in me, then it's Christ's work in me that gets brought into the household instead of vice versa. Does that make sense? So that's the direction that the influence needs to go. Our identity in Christ is bigger than our household identity. And really there's no better way to love those in our household than to have our affections for Christ be first in our heart. All right, go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5.22. We're at number eight on the outline. We're going to talk about submission to a husband and the grasp that that requires you to have on the gospel. Okay, so when we think about marriage, we need to think about Christ and the church. That's the first place we need to go so that we are women who build up marriage and we treasure marriage and we encourage marriages in how we think and how we talk and how we think about men and how we, what we listen to other women say about their husbands perhaps regardless of whether we're married or not. God esteems marriage and so we need to be women who esteem marriage. So Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives also ought to be to their husbands in everything. So if the church's submission to Christ is the model for a wife's submission to her husband, we need to make sure we understand the nature of that submission, of the church's submission to Christ. Now, believers submit to Christ in light of all that he has done for us in the gospel. Because he shed his blood, because there's no wrath left, because of our insubordination to God. He's made us new creatures with new desires and he's given us a heart to love Christ and as a new creation we find his authority to be a joy he actually equips us and enables us to submit to him he pulled us out from underneath his boot of judgment and he places us under his headship where we find protection and care now in that light submission is a joy. And that is the kind of submission that he tells us to bring to marriage. A woman looks beyond her husband to Christ. 
out of reverence for Jesus in light of all that he's done for us in the gospel and in what he's done in us through his gospel, we submit to Christ and we submit to our husband. See, your husband is your leader. And when we struggle to trust our earthly leader, we still follow him because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. He's sovereign and he's good. And that is where we rest our confidence in submitting to our husbands. And it's where we encourage one another to rest our confidence. So finally, that brings us to number nine on the outline, a New Testament model marriage. And we see that in Priscilla and Aquila. I'm going to let you look at the passages on your own. But in Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila partner with Paul in the gospel, and they actually help to support him through their tent-making business. And then later in that chapter, they meet Apollos, who has an incomplete view of the gospel. He only knew about John the Baptist, and they were able to help this brother who was deficient in doctrine, and Priscilla is right there with her husband, um, helping to equip Apollos. And then Apollos was sent off, and he was really useful with the gospel. And then Priscilla and Aquila show up again in Romans 16, where Paul is giving thanks for the many Christians that he knows, and Priscilla and Aquila are among them. And he says that they risked their necks for the gospel. That is an impressive marriage, where a husband and wife together risk their necks for the gospel. And that's, you know, isn't that what we want our marriages to be? So... We'll wrap this up. What what have we seen here? What are we seeing in all of this? Well, we have seen that the heart of God in Scripture for the household is that the woman who loves God will place a a priority on spiritually influencing her household with her heart for the gospel. And that's why Discipline 2 comes right after Discipline 1. There's just no room anywhere in Scripture to wiggle around it. It's just, it's just very plain. It's very clear. It is our responsibility to bring the gospel aroma to the rest of our household, to set up gospel bars to protect our household, to bar out false thinking, to bar out, bar out thinking that's devoid of the gospel. Any kind of thinking, any kind of deception that could come in and poison our households, our families, and those we live with. Our homes should be a place where God would love to bring people to himself, including the next generation. Don't we want our households to be that? Don't we want to encourage our friends and our children to have families like that? To have households that are places where God would just love to work, to bring children and others to Christ. Now we said at the beginning that our household relationships can also be the place of our biggest failures. But our hope is in the grace of God. God has lavished his grace upon us and the same grace that saves us is the same grace that sanctifies us and restores us. Restores what has been torn down. And we're going to talk a lot more about that in three weeks. We're going to talk about Proverbs 14.1.
But first, between now and then, we have an assignment. So go ahead and take out the assignment you picked up on the table this morning. I thought I picked one up. Maybe I didn't pick one up. Now, this is definitely the hardest assignment. You know, I'll be okay. That we've had so far. And this is definitely one that you can't wait till Friday night to do. You've got three weeks, and it's the holidays, which could just be a very humbling time to do this assignment. And I will tell you, I am definitely going to have to start with prayer. Because it can be difficult to do this kind of personal evaluation. It can be even harder to listen to others give us this kind of feedback about the spiritual climate of our homes. So we're going to be asking ourselves things like, are we playing leapfrog over our household relationships? And we're going to be talking to the people we live with about that. So you see at the top, um, evaluating my home life. Another reminder from Titus 2 there. Um, So the first question is, have you found yourself playing leapfrog over your household relationships? Now, it could be to get to ministry. It could be playing leapfrog to get to your to-do list, to my to-do list. Um, And then the question, if so, why do you think you have? We need to ask ourselves, what does that choice reflect about what we really believe? About about our heart, about how we're setting our priorities and making our choices. And then question two says, as you've evaluated your spiritual influence in your home, what do you see as the fruit or consequence of that influence? And again, I want to clarify, influence, we're not talking about leadership. We're not talking about control. We, we get that that's not our position as women in the home. But we're talking about the influence we have with our attitude, our actions, how we treat others, how we respond when we're sinned against, how we respond to authority, how we shepherd, how we set our priorities, what we value. And the question is focused on evaluating the fruit or the consequences of that influence. What has come about as a result of that influence that you have? And then it just, the, you know, just keep turning up the heat on these questions because now you've got to go ask somebody else what they think about your spiritual influence. Um, this is, um, and you're thinking about who to sit with. Obviously, if you're married, your husband's a great person. If you have kids who are old enough, you can sit with them. Um, if you, If you have a roommate, you can ask a roommate. If you live alone and you're just not sure who you should ask, think about people who might spend a lot of time in your home. Um, And if you still can't think of who it is you should ask about this, you either talk to your discussion leader or come talk to me because everybody has to do this. All right? Nobody's exempt. You can't sit down in group next time and say, well, I don't have anybody to ask because you have somebody. There is somebody who knows you on this level. Somebody who spend time in their home. It could be grown kids. It could be um, your parents. Maybe you've moved away. But we'll find somebody for you to ask, okay? Because we're in this together. But this is really important. Again, I said, I'm going to have to pray about this because this is really humbling. But when we do humble ourselves like this and we sit with these people that we live with, um it can actually open up doors for conversations that may be really long overdue. And they can be the first step in building and maybe even healing relationships that we never thought were possible just because they see in you someone saying, you know what, I need help with this. Help me see what I'm not seeing. 
So just I really want to encourage you again, if God's word lays you bare, it's for the purpose of, of restoration. Okay. Um, then the question five, what have you discovered about what needs to change? Um, try to evaluate what's at the root of that. If, if you don't know, then that's something that you can talk about in discussion group. We can help each other. And then the last question is the most important, looking for what the gospel implications are. We talk a lot about preaching the gospel to ourselves. And we're going to be examining an area of our life that might be very uncomfortable. And the only way to do that in a way that we don't lose hope, that we're not completely demoralized, is learning how to look at these relationships through the lens of the gospel. And so if this is new to you, if you just don't have any idea where to start, go back and look at that quote on the back of your outline that we started with this morning. That is a great place to start. It kind of helps to connect the dots, like, okay, because of the gospel, this is the next step. This is how the gospel enables me to change and, and, and live in my household. And remember the encouragement of what Christ has done for our sin in the gospel. Um, you may see, find out that there's sin you need to confess. You need to seek um, forgiveness from people. And that's only good. That only strengthens relationships. So, let's see. That's the last question, right? Okay. Well, then, that gives us time for discussion group.